Hello and welcome to the Journey Church and Transformative Truths. I'm James Egan. I'm so grateful that you're with us today. I want to speak to you on the subject of the Good Samaritan and a message entitled, To Whom Can I Be a Neighbor? To Whom Can I Be a Neighbor? And as if, you will, if you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 25 we'll read through verse 37. Many hospitals have been named after the Good Samaritan. This is probably one of the most familiar uh, stories out there in the world that we uh, live in and that you know there have been even laws called the Good Samaritan laws uh, that have been passed to encourage passerbys to help those in need. You kind of wonder where all did that come from. It comes right here from your New Testament. And we begin reading in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. A pretty smart lawyer. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And just who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed on by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was the neighbor of him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. It has been common and maybe you have experienced this as you've heard this sermon and uh, this passage preached in times past that uh, what is known as an allegorical interpretation has been applied to it where the traveler represents man who has left the heavenly city Jerusalem and is in the worldly one known as Jericho. Robbers represent the devil in sin and leave uh, leave this man of the world dying in sin. The priests and the Levites represent both to the law its sacrifice and thus they say they're unable to help. But the Good Samaritan is Jesus who provides the help needed. Uh, wine represents the blood of Christ, the oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the inn is the church. The innkeeper represents the apostles and the two coins represent baptism and the Lord's Supper. You may have heard that. In fact, I'm almost certain of it that you've heard this text preached that way. That's called allegory. Uh, that has no place in today's church or in the church of history past or that which is in the future. We want to under the, understand the text with what it says 
and what it means, what does Jesus mean? You know, what is He really teaching in this parable, or does He give us a lesson that He wants us to glean from it? Well, I believe it's those last two parts. He has a lesson for us. What is He teaching? I'm going to show you, and what does He want us to glean from it? So let me begin with the first point, and that is the setting of the parable. The setting of the parable. And you have a conversation that takes place between Jesus and a lawyer. A lawyer in this context would be one who is well versed in the law of Moses. It says in verse 25, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now the word test doesn't have to imply negative connotations always. It may simply mean the man was seeking to ascertain Jesus' faithfulness to the law. But there are some implications that he was seeking out to trick Jesus. Uh, he stood up perhaps to draw attention to himself. Later he sought to justify himself as we read in the text with another question implying he was interested in more than just a simple answer to his original question. And his question was similar to the one that was asked by the rich young ruler over in Luke 18:18, 18, 18, where he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to know as a gospel minister in the community which I serve, I cannot tell you how many times people have come up and asked me what must I do to be saved. In fact, I don't recall once being asked that question. We have become so inoculated to the gospel in our society that uh, um, people have concluded the gospel means something to themselves and maybe something entirely different to someone else. And it is, it is our objective to teach what the gospel is according to the scripture. The scripture is the authority. And it is by the gospel of the scripture that men are saved, not the gospel of, of, of anyone's interpretation who claims to be a Christian or otherwise. Jesus answers in verse 26, he says, What is written in the law? That was a question. What is written in the law? And what is your reading of it? And so in doing so, Jesus shows His own confidence in the law. I want you to understand that. There are those today who, though probably well-meaning, think that the Old Testament and the law should not be a concern of the believer. It absolutely should be the concern of a believer because it's God's Word. It's been God-breathed. And so all of it matters to us. The Old Testament is the bud and the New Testament is the bloom. And we understand the nature and the character of God in the Old Testament. And we, under, and we understand the character and nature of ourselves in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we understand the nature and character of Jesus Christ and what we become in nature and character as we become genuine followers and adherents to His teaching and living in obedience to Him. So Jesus demonstrates to him his high value of the law. And I want to make very clear to you, I don't think you should have a higher value of the law than Jesus does. And I don't think you should have a lower value of the law than Jesus does either. Jesus even says, I've not come to take away one word of the law, not even one iota. The iota is this little mark, tick mark that is found in the Greek language. It is the smallest mark of punctuation in Greek. It's, it's, I guess it's smaller than a period. 
And so uh, he says, I've not come to remove the law, not even one iota, even the letter of the law, one iota, I've come to fulfill it. And so here you see Jesus holding the law up highly. And in a similar manner, Jesus pointed the rich young ruler to the, to the law in Luke 18, verse 20. So keep in mind at this time, the law was still in force. And so the answer was still to be found. Look over here with me in Matthew chapter uh, 5. Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, and let's look at, at uh, verses 17 through 19. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus says, and, and, and it, obviously I just anticipated myself, do not think that I came to destroy the law or, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there is simply no basis for any other than a worldly reason for anybody to set, to set the law lower when Jesus in the greatest sermon ever preached set it on high. Okay? And so the lawyer replied with a proper understanding of the text in verse 20, of the law rather, in verse 27 through 28, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he says, You have answered rightly, do this and you will live. So what does he do? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He does that, in both which Jesus quoted to another lawyer on a later occasion in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. So we see this, this consistency with the law and Jesus elevating it. But I don't think this lawyer is really, I, I think we're going to see here in a moment, this lawyer's uh, e efforts are not quite as pure as they might sound. But we'll, leave, we'll let the text show us that. And so upon these two laws, one to love God and the other to love thy neighbor, th the Bible tells us the entire law of God is based to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Against these there is no other commandment. The whole law of God is, God is based on this, and those living while the law was still in force could live. That is, be saved. Be saved. So let's recap the conversation as, we have, as we're taking up the setting of the parable. The lawyer stands up to test Jesus. Jesus answers a question by pointing him back to the law. The lawyer replies with a proper understanding of the law, taught concerning eternal life. But then the lawyer is not finished. Look at verse 29. Look what happens. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? He is uh, consistent with the lawyer. He is consistent with the lawyer. I'm going to just tell you kind of what I think is happening here. He is desired to justify himself because he, he is embarrassed Jesus answered him so easily. You need to remember something. I, I've learned this. One of my very best friends is a lawyer. I mean, I love him like a dad. And I, and I say to him often in my conversations with him, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a juror. I don't understand the intricacies of how the law works. But uh, I understand what it means to be a juror. I've been a juror. I've been a witness. But here in this case, Jesus is not only juror and witness, but Jesus is judge. Jesus is judge. 
and his spirit is prophecy, the spirit of prophecy, which came upon the lawgivers in the Old Testament. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And in the, in, and in the context here, this lawyer has been, he's been served, so to speak, by Jesus totally answering him. And so he stands up to justify himself when what is absolutely essential that we understand, the only one that can justify him is the one whom he is seeking to argue with. Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to tell you what I think is happening here at this point. I think not only of, of, I don't think this applies just to lawyers. I think it applies to all of us. When we want to just argue back or justify our position in the face of God and God's evidence, we are denying the hand of God on our life. We may be doing it consciously, but in most cases we're doing it subconsciously. Well, I, you say, I don't understand. Well, I think you do. We hear something that we say we don't agree with because we may not be able to reason it out, so we set our face like flint against it when really and truly, if it comes from God's Word, God has put His hand upon you. He has set His hand upon you to move you from where you are to another place. But what do we do? We try to justify ourselves. I don't, I don't believe that uh, I have any control at all over how someone responds to me. I cannot control a person's emotions, uh, what they think or what they do. As a pastor, the only thing I've ever been able to successfully do is say, bow your heads, it's time to pray, or would you stand? Uh, that's, about, that's about the extent of the power that I have been able to exercise over human beings. But I have never ever been able to con be convinced or convince myself that I can take responsibility or control how someone responds to me. And that's because I'm a juror. I'm a juror. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not trying to persuade. I'm trying to be persuaded. And what I'm doing here, as I hope all godly preachers are doing this morning, um, is they're trying to be persuaded that these are the truths of God and as such share that persuasion with you who are also jurors. And those that want to argue with the text, well, they're just going to go to their graves arguing. They are denying the hand of God upon their life. And I'm going to tell you, you got to be, you, you, you got to be careful when you do that. So this lawyer's not finished. He stands up to justify himself. Now he wants to make it about himself. And he is embarrassed. And he asks the question, who is my neighbor? But I'm going to tell you something. What's more important is not the question that you ask the question. What's more important is you ask the right question. And he asked the question, who is my neighbor? At the conclusion of this message you will understand not only was he foolish, not only was he denying the hand of God, not only was he trying to be the center of attention, not only was he, was he drawing attention to himself, but he demonstrated he didn't even know the right question to ask. And that is the key to this text, and it is the major takeaway. You see, the lawyer has manifested a proud, self-righteous spirit. He's manifested a proud, self-righteous spirit. Though he knew the letter of the law, he was ignorant of its spiritual importance. He supposed that he had merited eternal life by his obedience, that is, his works, yet he had far from showing a loving disposition towards the Lord himself uh, because he's standing there trying to trick him. 
The parable opened with him, with him more extensive views of the law. It showed him that so far as having practiced his duty, he had not even understood it. Thus it destroyed it all at once his self-righteous hope. All at once it was destroyed, and at the same time introduced the necessity of a practical and universal benevolence. And the mild as the rebuke was, it could not be, it could not but convince his judgment. Yet it was so conveyed that it could not reasonably give an offense. That is indeed the way of the lawyer. Well, we see the parable in its setting. We've given you the context. You have the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer, but you also have the parable itself here in the parable in its setting. A man travels from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he is beaten, as it says in verse 30. And this is a distance of about 20 miles. I have traveled this road before uh, many times. It's a dangerous road. It's a road known as the way of blood. The way of blood because of robbers. And he was stripped of his clothing and wounded by the thieves, and he was left there for dead. And then two pass by, and they do nothing. Look and notice your text. It is the two that I'm very interested in, these two men. Now by chance a certain priest, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him he passed on the other side. Now this priest, what kind of priest was he? Well it says he was coming down the road. We presume he was coming down the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Perhaps he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. It doesn't matter, but he was coming down the road. But who is fallen down prey to the victims? A Jew. Who is this priest? This priest is a Jewish priest. And he sees his countrymen. He sees the man of his same religious sect. He sees the man of his same political orientation. And he walks right by him. The priest, the priest whose job is to speak to God about what he hears the people say. That's his job. And what does he do? His own countrymen, his own religion, his own sect. He walks right by him and does nothing. And then what happens in verse 31? Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Both of these men, priest and a Levite, they are the religious elite they are the religious elite. The community has said these are the men of God. These are the ones amongst the, the people, the congregation of Israel that they look up to. And here they walk by their own man, their own countryman, and leave him there for dead. They come by at the same time, and they leave him for dead. They offer nothing. They offer nothing. They pass by and do nothing. They're probably going in their mind, who's my neighbor? Well, that man's not my neighbor. And then in verses 33 through 35, you have the Samaritan come by. Look what it says. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. He gave the innkeeper a line of credit. And he took care of this Jewish man. 
But you must understand something, friend. Whereas the friends of the Jew, the priest and the Levite came by, we learn from John chapter 4 that Samaritans were despised by the Jews. Samaritans were absolutely despised by the Jews. They were the descendants of those imported at the time of the Assyrian captivity. We read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17, 24 through 41. But I want you to know something else. The Samaritans despised the Jews. They despised the Jews terribly. Terribly. They thought they were um, nuts. And so the reality is, is here the Samaritan who would be despised by the Jew and the Jew who would be despised by the Samaritan, what happens? He shows compassion. He shows compassion. He bandaged the wound applying oil and wine. That was first aid in those days. He put the wounded man on his own animal and he took him to an inn. He gave him two denarii. Let me, let me put that into context. He gave him two days' wages. He gave the innkeeper two days' wages to provide for care. Two days' wages. And he tells the innkeeper to spend whatever it takes, and I will come back. I will come back, and I will repay whatever you have spent. This man is not of the same sect. This man is not of the same persuasions. This man is not of the same political party. This man is not of the same religion. This man is not even his own countryman. He is his enemy. He is his enemy by blood. And he, has, he is the one who has compassion. So then, you feeling it yet? <laughs> yeah, you're feeling it like I feel it. Well then, we're still talking about how that you know, the parable is set up with the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer, the parable itself, but Jesus, follow, Jesus has a follow-up to the parable under this concept. He poses the question, which of the three proved to be the neighbor? In verse 36, look what he says. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? See, that's, if you treat the text as an allegory, you make things up about who these characters are. You deny letting the hand of God convict you as to what the text really means, what Jesus is trying to teach. He poses the question, which of the three proved to be the neighbor? And the lawyer replies with an obvious answer. He says, he who showed mercy on him. Now what is mercy? Mercy is lifting a person out of their misery. Mercy is lifting a person out of their misery. Jesus then admonishes the lawyer, and I think he looked at him right in the eyes, and he said, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Notice that Jesus turned to focus on the original question, who is my neighbor? Who was the one that the neighbor who was the one that was neighbor to the one in need? This indicates Jesus draws attention to what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember? That's the teaching of Christ. So the purpose of the parable in view of its context is not an allegory. 
It is simply Jesus teaches who our, neighbor, who our neighbors really are and what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what He's teaching us. Here are some lessons that then we can glean from the parable that might need to be kept in mind. Number two, the parable in its setting. Number two, the lessons from the parable. The first one is this, a neighbor is one in need whom we can help. Let me say that again. A neighbor is one in need whom we can help. Whom we can help. One might think that a neighbor is one with whom we share affinities. We share affinities such as being of the same race, the same nationality or religion, or just anyone who's not considered your enemy. Yet Jesus puts such a concept to rest using the Samaritan as an example. The Samaritans were different in race. They were different in nationality and they were different in religion from the Jews. And there was great animosity between them. I, for the sake of time, I'll give you the verses to look at. John 4, 9 and Luke 9, 52 and 53. You can go look at the animosity. John 4, 9 and Luke 9, 52 through 53. Though considered enemies, the Samaritan was helping a Jew in need. And so, it's, so it is that the Christians are to show hospitality. We are to show hospitality, literally the love of strangers. So let, let's, let's do a little bit of looking at that. First of all, I'd like you to go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, and then we're going to go over to Galatians and then back to Matthew. Romans 12, verse 13. Let's just begin with verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now, that term, hospitality, means love of strangers. That, that doesn't mean... That I know that we would underst we understand hospitality as welcoming someone into one's home for a cup of coffee, and you know, it, and being welcomed or, or to be refreshed. That's our concept of hospitality. But this means love of strangers. It would have been a whole lot easier for me if it would have just said that, and I think it would have been a whole lot better for the church uh, in general if it had said it that way. But the Bible does what it does to drive us to study it. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, Therefore as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, to all. Can you say to all? To all. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those that are of the household of faith. It doesn't say let us do good to all exclusively those of the household of faith. Let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. And then go back to the great sermon on the mountain, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew 5, 43. This is kind of the ultimate teaching. Jesus says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do this? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why? Well, now look, look what it says, verse 48. He says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What is he basing that on? He is basing that on you will be sons of this Father if, and you will be perfect, complete as a Father, if what? You love your enemies and bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I mean, the lawyer just simply asked the wrong question. And not only did he ask the wrong question, he asked the wrong guy. He is now in a position, his back is against the wall. He is trying to justify himself and Jesus has just looked at him in the eyes and he says, you go and do likewise. Now, I want you to write this down. This is the major objective of the message. This is what it all comes down to. Your neighbor then, your neighbor then is anyone in need whom you have the ability to help. Your neighbor is anyone in need whom you have the ability to help. If I was a sinner that wanted not to have, have, and I want you to know I am, but if I was a sinner, and I'm qualifying this, if I was a sinner and I wanted to deny the hand of God on my life, I would read this story as a parable of Jesus. I would accuse the text of not being accurate. I would say this is just simply a story. This didn't happen. And I would say that this is a symbolism. But I'm a sinner who believes God's Word means what it says and says what it means. And Jesus says, my neighbor is anyone whom I have the ability to help that's in need, regardless of what affinities we share or do not share. There is an incongruity. There is a misalignment of divorcing neighborliness, neighborliness with religion. There is a incongruency. It's, uh, it's, they, don't, they don't line up together. They don't, they don't fit together if you divorce neighborliness from religion. Of the three passers-by in the parable, the first two uh, should have been the first to help. One was a priest, the other one was a Levite. They should have been the first ones to help. The priest and the Levite should have been influenced by their religion to help. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. They knew this. They should have helped. But they had divorced neighborliness from religion. They should have helped. And indeed, they were taught to love a stranger. You can read it in Luke 19, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. Let's just go look at it. Let's prove it up. Leviticus, all the way back there at the beginning of your Bible. If you hit numbers, keep going to the left. Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 through 34, both the priest and the Levite 
would have known this. They would have, had, they would have been examined on this. They would have been tested over it. They would know this. And so it says, The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall, not do, do no, you shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, and so forth and so forth. He tells them specifically, and if a strange, verse 33, and if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you, you shall, shall be to you as one born among you. This is where they broke the law. This man was born among them. And they treated him like a stranger in an incongruent manner, in an inconsistent manner to what God has said. God said, you shall treat a stranger in the land as if he is born of your own people. This man was born of their own, of their own kind. And they even mistreated him. God forbid that the text reveal to us how they treated strangers if they could not even treat their own the way God has commanded. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Turn to the right. Skip numbers and you'll be in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look at verse 17 through 19. Just to further emphasize this truth. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice to the fatherless and to, to the widows and loves the strangers, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Friend, friend, listen to me. Jesus Christ is holding up the law with this story, speaking to a lawyer who is striving to justify himself and deny the hand of God on his own life with his questions and his manipulations. And so the reality of it is you have this terrible benedict you have this terrible valedictory about this priest and this this Levite shame on them. According to the scripture they have broken the law of God and they've done it with impunity. They've done it high-handed. And when they separated neighborliness from their religion, they became hypocritical. For the priest would teach the law, and the Levite would assist in the service, but failing to practice what they preached, they showed how shallow their devotion to their faith really was. As Christians, we need to be sure to practice pure and undefiled religion, as it says in James chapter 1, 22 and 26 through 27. Otherwise, we will deceive ourselves. James, the, the, the street manual of, of, of how-to manual to have how to be a Christian, tells us if you want to practice pure and undefiled religion, then you care for folks like we're talking about in this text. Just go look at it. James 1, 22, 26 through 27. It's right there. So what kind of religion, friend, do you have? Oh, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship. Don't, don't play that game. You're no different than the lawyer when you do that. What kind of religion do you have? 
Do you have pure religion that's undefiled, that's pure before God? Or are you seeking to justify yourself? I don't know. I can't look into your heart, but I know this much. I look into my heart, and this text convicts me. This text convicts me very much. There is more that I must do, and I will learn by doing it. It's not that I need to learn more, so I'll do more. You learn by doing it. It's OJT, on-the-job training. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to be kept passionate, you're going to pay a cost. There's a price to it. There is the cost of compassion. First of all, there's the willingness to cross a social barrier. Jesus illustrated using a Samaritan in this parable. They, they should, there should be no religious, racial, or national barriers in showing compassion. We should show compassion. There needs to be, number two, a willingness to take risk. If, if, you're, going to, if, if you're going to show compassion, you're going to have to be willing to cross a social barrier and willing to take a risk. The Samaritan took a great risk by stopping to help. What if the robbers were still near? What if they were hiding in the bushes? What if the other thieves came by on the road known as the way of blood, as I mentioned otherwise? So Christians are called upon to take risk. Go over here to chapter 6 of Luke. Just go to Luke chapter 6. Turn back to the left here in your Bibles where we are in Luke 10. Look at Luke 6 verse, verse 30. Look what Jesus Christ says. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him take away, and from him who takes away your good, do not ask them back. You run a risk. You're called to take a risk. Perhaps this is an area where we need to have more faith in God. How do we know how people won't take advantage of our generosity? It's like I said from the beginning. I cannot control. I've... I've I cannot control how someone responds to me. I can influence, but I can't control it. And so I, can, I don't know if they're going to take advantage of me or not. But the reality of it is Jesus exhorts us. He says, do good and leave the consequences to Him. And if they take advantage of you, then they take advantage of you. And so that's just the way it works. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm contributing to the delinquency of a criminal. Well, you may be, but before God, you're honoring Him. You're honoring Him. God's going to take care of that person. He's the judge. We're just the jury. We're the ones that are to respond to what God says. This is what God says. I have decided this is what He says. He says, I'm to do it, so I'm to do it, and I leave the consequences to Him. There's going to have to be a willingness to set aside a busy schedule. There has to be a willingness to set aside a busy schedule. The Samaritan was on a journey but took the time to stop and care for the man. Jesus taught us to take time to show compassion even when we're, even when we're forced. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, Matthew 5, 41, Jesus demonstrates that we need to show compassion even when we're forced to. He's talking about walking in the second mile. He talks about the first mile may have been forced, but the second mile was the one given out of love. So if a man comes along and asks you to walk with him one mile, Jesus says, walk with him two. The first one was forced. The second one was out of love. There's going to have to be a willingness to make sacrifices. A willingness to make sacrifice. The Samaritans sacrificed more than just time and energy. He used his own provisions, two days' wages. He even offered an open-ended agreement to provide help, a line of credit. How many of you would like to have a line of credit? that someone else will come and pay. I'd love one. I guarantee I could spend it. I would love it. 
That's exactly what this Samaritan did to this man that would be considered his enemy. And it never says that the Samaritan considered him his friend. It never said that the Samaritan considered him clean or righteous or holy. It says the Samaritan showed compassion. He had not divorced his religion from his compassion. So in conclusion, with the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're challenged to a higher standard of love. Friends, listen to me. We're living in an unprecedented time where people need to know the love of Christ. They need to know it. And the higher definition of neighbor is a more inclusive definition. It's a higher definition. The definition of compassion, as we've seen in this text, is a much higher definition than what we're used to. And this should not be surprising in light of what Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 5.20 where He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is your righteousness like? Is your righteousness like that of a priest? Is your righteousness like that of a Levite? Or is it like that of a Samaritan? Only as we emulate the good example of the Samaritan can it be said that our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. Only then do we have the assurance of entering the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because we have the security of obedience. The security of obedience. Therefore, let us heed the words of Jesus as He said to the lawyer, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. but there's a little bit more, just a wee bit. Let's learn three more invaluable lessons as I'm finished. From the lawyer, let us learn the folly of self-righteousness. From the lawyer, let us learn the folly of self-righteousness. The law requires us to love God with all our hearts and our neighbor as ourselves. That is the requirement of the law. If we obeyed it perfectly without the smallest defect throughout our whole lives, we then could be justified by it. But we don't. Whoever loved and served God, who, who has ever loved God and served God to the uttermost extent of one's faculties and powers? Whoever has. Whoever has incessantly occupied himself in the labor of love towards others and those who hated and despised them, and despised Him for it? Who has not felt, felt some backwardness or fallenness or brokenness in a communion with God and some want for sympathy of His own neighbor? All of us have. And yet the law can be satisfied with nothing less than perfect obedience. With perfect obedience. It pronounces a curse against us if we transgress it and hence we are told that no flesh living can be justified it. So therefore, let us cease to expect life from our own obedience. Let us forever shut our mouths and stand guilty before God as we are. And let us acknowledge ourselves in need of the mercy and grace that the apostles needed, the prophets needed, and all of us need that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the lesson we learn from the lawyer. 
The lesson we learn from the Good Samaritan is that the true is the true nature of Christian charity. Unfortunately, we're living in a time where people have confused the church's charity for welfare. It is not the duty of the church to take care of those who don't take care of themselves. It is the duty of the church to show charity where it can, to help those in a time of need, but it is not ours to support another household. It's not ours to, to cover for the mistakes that others have made. We're to show charity, not welfare. And so, let's look at what we learn from this Good Samaritan. We're part, or we're apt to imagine that persons of our own nation, our sect, our party, are the proper objectives of our love. They're easy to love. But Christian charity extends to all of mankind. The distinction of religion and politics should be forgotten whenever the object stands in need of our assistance. Let me say that again. The distinction of religion or politics should be forgotten whenever our, an object stands in need of our assistance. And we should sympathize as truly with our bitter, bitterest enemy as we do with our dearest friend. We should sympathize with our most bitter enemy as we do with our dearest friends. And so let us endeavor to mortify our narrow, selfish principles and abound in disinterested, self-denying offices of love. That's what we learn from the Good Samaritan. And last of all, what do we learn from the Lord? What do we learn from the Lord? When we contemplate the love of fellow creatures, we need to bring to our remembrance the infinite love, the infinitely richer love of our most adorable Redeemer. We, justify, we justly admire the conduct of the benevolent Samaritan and the consideration that his kindness was shown to this detested Jews greatly enhances its value. How then must we admire the love of, of Christ towards this ruined race called humanity? We were robbed of the image of God in which we were made. We were left altogether dead in trespasses and sin, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. No creating being could administer an effectual relief, but Jesus beheld us lying, by the, lying in our own blood. And yet though we were His enemies, He pitied us. He not only took care of us, but He laid down His life for us. He has taken it upon Himself also the whole charge of our cure. And there is nothing that we want which He has not freely bestowed upon us already. Let us magnify and, and, and glorify our generous benefactor, Jesus Christ, from the lesson we learn of the Good Samaritan. Because while we respect the exercise of love in, in a fellow creature, let us study to comprehend the unsearchable love of Christ for us for me and for you. And let us make His love, His love, the model and the method by which we love those in need of our help. Heavenly Father, thank You for the Word of God, its truth. This is a transformative truth. 
We ask You, Father, to make it so in our lives. Bring us the opportunities to see that this Word has been settled in our heart. But Lord, the real proof will be when we make the opportunities to see the Word settled in our heart. We ask Your blessings upon it, knowing that none of it is possible without the redeeming work of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that You would redeem anyone, anywhere, anytime, as You said in John John 3.16, whosoever will shall not perish. O Lord, raise up the whosoever will. And those of us that You have called to be saved, those of us that are in Christ, the women and men in Christ, May we go and do likewise as Jesus has commanded us here. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.